Thank you, Darla. Beautiful, well done, as always. If you would, please turn to um, the Gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke. As you do all, I'd like to make one more mention of the membership orientation. And we began that this morning. It's usually a two-week orientation. But if you are interested in becoming a member, please see me afterwards. Uh, One couple missed would like to catch up. I'll try and catch you up with where where we're at, and you can come next week and and finish up. So uh, just let me know. The Gospel of Luke. I just simply titled this an introduction to the Gospel of Luke. Let's begin by reading our text, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things which you have been taught. Well, as we begin this study of the life of Christ, I anticipate that all of us here who consider ourselves Christian, we'd agree there's no greater privilege, no greater honor, no more important responsibility than telling the lost about the life of Christ, his, his life on earth. And so extraordinary an event it was that God sent his only beloved son to be born of a virgin, to grow, to dwell among men for some 30 years, that the entire world has changed as a result. Now think about that in comparison for just a moment about the activities of the Old Testament, that was roughly 4,500 years recorded in the Old Testament Scriptures. They, they included Genesis, Abraham, Moses, all the events of Israel, the captivities. And those encompassed a geographical area comparative to the size of Texas, roughly about the size of Texas. And I know if you originate from Texas, you would almost certainly agree that's a pretty ginormous size. But, in the greater scheme of things, even bigger than Texas, the events that represented Christ, His life, His death, His burial, His resurrection, they were huge. But they, they occurred on a very small fraction of the planet, very small area. After three years of public ministry, the influence of Christ's life was so impactful that within one generation, Christianity had spread to at least three continents. At least. No greater sequence of events has ever occurred than those recording and concerning the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, His ascension into heaven. That is the good news The good news resulted, as the Apostle Paul defines it in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, saying that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and He was buried, and He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. That is the good news. That is the Gospel. Death has been defeated. 
People wanted to know about Him, this Christ who rose from the dead, who was seen as ascending into heaven. And beginning on that day of Pentecost, the message of the gospel, it spread quickly, it spread rapidly, it spread with great power through His disciples with a message. It was because of the power of God's Holy Spirit. And the ministries of these disciples, now referred to as apostles by this time, by the resurrection, uh, they were authenticated. They were evidenced. They They were testified to by many miracles, many signs, many wonders. In fact, for nearly 20 years after Christ's resurrection, the church had no official written record of Christ. Nearly 20 years. No official written record of his life. The early church was established on the eyewitness testimony of those who saw. They preached what they had seen with their own eyes. These apostles. More than 500 other people seeing Christ at one time. And the gospel was initially then passed along orally. Person to person. In fact, when Luke commented in verse 1 that that many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished or fulfilled among us, he's almost certainly referring to the many oral traditions about Christ already that were being circulated. That that shouldn't alarm us, really. You know, unlike our modern era where we can't remember one another's phone numbers or even people's names from week to week much of the time. That's the way we are. Jewish oral tradition, it was remarkably reliable in that day. Remarkably reliable. And as we remember, all of Jesus' apostles, all of them were Jewish. So this was very common in their culture. These oral accounts of the life of Christ, they were being circulated by the apostles. They were authenticated by, they were accompanied by many miracles, signs, and wonders. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, we read that this salvation now made available through Christ first was spoken through the Lord Jesus. Second, it was confirmed by those who heard, that is the eyewitnesses. And third, God also testified with them. God testified by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to God's own will. God himself testified. He testified to the genuineness, testified about what Christ had accomplished through signs and wonders and miracles. The Apostle Paul assured an eyewitness account of the resurrected Christ combined with genuine miracles, they were the marks of a true apostle versus the many false apostles. This is in complete harmony with Luke's claim that he is now writing down a written record gathered from, verse 2, those who were from the beginning eyewitnesses and servants of the word. In fact, following Christ's ascension, when Peter led the other eleven, or the eleven, he was one of them, in searching for a replacement of that office that was vacated by Judas Iscariot, Found in Acts 1 verse 22, Peter requires two criteria of the replacement. Do you remember what they are? Number one, the replacement 
that candidate had to have been with them the entire time. From the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan by John the Baptist until his ascension, anybody filling that office would have to have been with them, the apostles, the entire time. Secondly, he had to have been an eyewitness to Christ's resurrection. Had to have been an eyewitness to Christ's resurrection. How many men, according to Scripture, existed who were qualified to assume that office? Two. Two had been there the entire time. Two had been with them. Only two, Joseph and Matthias. Now, you're pretty bright people. Think to yourself whether leaders of charismatic circles, other sects, those who tell their followers today that they are apostles, they themselves are apostles, to whom God has spoken in some way, does their message carry any authority? As an apostle, no. No, there's no authority. They have no eyewitness testimony. They weren't there at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, at the baptism all the way to the ascension. They have no verifiable miracles or signs. Just a private dream, a personal experience. Something they saw by themselves and now they're telling you about. Does any subjective experience carry any authority? No. Scripture is very clear. It does not. But this eyewitness apostolic testimony of those who lived with Christ, who saw Him raised, it had to be preserved. It had to be. The apostles knew they were mortal men. They were each going to die They knew that. How are they going to preserve this message for the ages? How are they going to preserve it for the benefit of the church? A clue arrives from the Apostle John. uh, He acknowledged in his Gospel, which we just read a little bit earlier in the Scripture reading, that if all these things that Jesus had done, all the things that were fulfilled through Christ were written in detail, he supposed the whole world could not contain the books that were written. Now he's probably using some hyperbole there just to assure the church that you're not going to get a complete record of everything that Jesus did. Not going to be in great detail. No way you can describe an infinite God who became man and everything that he did. But what we are given are four abridged records of the life of Christ. They're called the Gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are four of them. This word gospel, evangelion, it's the word that we use evangelize, to tell others. It's, it's the message of the truth, the gospel, the good news of our salvation, we're told in Ephesians 1.13. It's the gospel, it's the good news about Jesus Christ. And these four writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they provide us complementary chronicles of Christ's life. They're, they complement one another. Neither is, none of them are exhaustive. They tell us about his earth, earthly life, the ministry of Christ. We learn about his birth, his baptism, his benediction, the beatitudes, his many blessings, his betrayal, the beating of his body, the bleeding of his blood, his bereavement, His burial, His resurrection, all of these things contained in these four records of the life of Christ 
They're called the Gospels. If you didn't know what a written Gospel was, it is about the life of Christ. It describes the life of Christ. These four accounts, they're not identical. They complement one another. They never contradict one another. Think of how boring it would be if we just had four Gospels that were identical. Be like reading the same book over and over and over. You wouldn't do that. They're complementary. They, they paint a bigger picture of Christ through the parallel accounts, the similar accounts, the complementary accounts. I, I've described it in different times to people, you know, why are there four Gospels? Three of them being, being very similar. Well, think about it. If you want to get a very clear picture of things, and let's say you're playing NFL football, and you don't know whether they got across the goal line or whether they were stopped short or whether they got the Super Bowl trophy or they didn't, what do you do? You get three different angles on it, right? And you can see much more clearly what actually happened. That's how the synoptic Gospels work. They're very similar to one another. They complement one another. They paint a beautiful picture of Christ. They each have a precise purpose. You know, John articulated the purpose for his gospel in chapter 20, verse 31, saying this, These things have been written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's why he wrote. You know, very, people, very often people ask us, where should I begin reading in the Gospels? In the Bible, anywhere. Where should I begin? We usually tell them to start reading in the Gospel of John, right? If anyone here wants to start reading, the Gospel of John would be very good. He said, they're written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So all four of these Gospels are, in a sense, they're, they're evangelistic. They're there to draw people to faith in Jesus Christ. And observing the writing of these Gospels and and the subsequent books of the Bible that came later, it is possible to sense over time that, that there is a transition that's happening. The attention turns away from the miraculous, more toward more toward the mundane activities of everyday life. Activities turn from the supernatural more towards the natural occurrences. And the last gospel that is written of these four was written by the last living apostle at that time. His name is John. And he removes any misplaced reliance or dependence on the part of the Christian to experience something miraculous in order to get saved. He just takes that out of the picture. You don't have to see something miraculous to believe. John wrote that final gospel at least 20 years after the other gospels. Perhaps as many as 30 years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written. And in fact, at this time when he is writing it, John is the only apostle left on the scene. All of the others have, have died for the faith. He's left alone now, being a very old man. And John then writes what we have of the final five books of the Bible. It is the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, his epistles, and Revelation. Those are the last five books of the Bible. And near the close of this, this final Gospel, the final account of the good news, chapter 21, verse 29, 
John records how the now resurrected Christ, who'd come out of the grave, reproves Doubting Thomas. Remember that? Doubting Thomas wasn't there when Jesus first appeared to the other apostles. He said, unless I put my finger in his hand, unless I put my hand in his side, I'm not going to believe. So later, Christ appears to all of them again, and Thomas is there, quite humbled, I'm sure. And Jesus forces him. He says, no, you come. Put your finger here. Put your hand here in my side. Jesus said to him, uh, at that point then, Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Jesus says to him, because you have seen me, you believe? Blessed are they who did not see and yet have believed. And then it is written by John, uh, his, his purpose for writing this gospel. He continues by saying, Many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Don't let that escape you. John said, These things have been written so that you may believe. John didn't say, continue to anticipate signs, miracles, wonders. Scripture actually tells us those were signs of an apostle. A true apostle. At this point in time, the other apostles are dead, as I had mentioned. John now is very old. We're probably getting close to 90 AD, possibly even later. And he actually implies, don't anticipate miracles. Better is he who has believed and not seen. Because that's faith. Christians, we're told, will believe by what is written about Jesus, right? These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. All of Scripture indicates we believe through hearing the written message of Christ. All of it does. Not by seeing some signs. There are so many scriptures that I could quote to this. Here's, here's just a few. Romans 10.17 Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, right? That's how faith comes. Hearing the word. Ephesians 1.13 After hearing the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed. After hearing. James 1.18 In an exercise of his will, God brought us forth by the hearing of the word. 1 Peter 1.23 You have born, been born again through the living and enduring Word of God. And then Peter says, This is the Word which was preached to you. It is the Word of God by which we believe. We become Christians by believing the proclamation of the written Word of God. Not by seeing miracles. But that's not all. We also get assurance through the written word of God. Assurance of our faith. 1 John 5.13 says this, These things have been written, again written, so that you may know that you have eternal life. We have the writings. But again, that is not all. We also, in Revelation 21, verses 18 and 19, now this is the last chapter of the last book written in the Bible, Revelation. 
John says we receive doctrinal protection through the written, written Word of God. He says, if anyone adds to or takes away from these words that are written, right? You can know that they don't have their name written in the book of life. They're not the real deal if they're adding to what has been written. We can know they're a false teacher. And in these last, in three of these last five books written by the last apostle, the last one on the scene, the last one alive, we're assured that everything that the Christian needs... Everything that we need for faith, life, and practice is written in that book right there. Everything. We don't, we're not waiting on anything more. We're not waiting on any new message or extra message or any miracle or anything. Everything is in the Word. All Scripture is God-breathed for useful for training and teaching and rebuking. It's the Word of God which we believe in. Starting next week, we're going to see a, really a, a large number of miracles as we go into this gospel done by Jesus. And they're written down by the gospel writer. And, and we need to condition ourselves beforehand, before we go into the gospel, and look at the life of the Son of God. We need to condition ourselves that we don't need, we don't anticipate, we don't have to have miracle signs and wonders. Praise God. And I say this because much of the modern church, they've lost a wheel. They've gone off the track. They're seeking all the time miraculous signs and wonders, and they won't believe if they don't see. Unwilling to believe unless they see something out of this world. That's not faith. That's not faith. And we'll hear Jesus say in Luke eleven twenty nine when we get to chapter 11, it's a wicked and adulterous generation that seeks a sign. They don't believe. There's no faith involved with that. And on that same occasion, tells that same crowd, look it up, Luke eleven twenty nine. On the contrary, to signs that is, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. That's what we are to do. To hear the Word of God, believe, and observe the Word of God. The miracles of the early church of Christ, of the early apostles who were there with Christ, they were supernatural works. They usually defied the laws of physics. Walking on water, a leper instantly healed, a blind man from birth suddenly regaining his sight, a dead person not dead anymore. Churches today that are professing miracles, they're usually marginalizing the word and their miracles aren't so miraculous. It's never a dead person not dead anymore as we see with Christ. It's never like that. It's exactly the opposite of what the Bible teaches us to do. It says to heed the written word of God. That's our faith, our life, our practice. We're not Jesus. We're not apostles. We aren't waiting day by day to intervene in our life through a miracle. We're not hoping for that. We're not anticipating that. I had a, uh, a pleasant conversation with one of our youth last week after service, and, and it was really good. We were talking about the preparation for life. 
about, about how to be prepared for what God's going to bring into our lives and, and uh, preparing for the Christian life. This really applies to all of us. And, and the topic turned towards professional sports. Think about professional sports for a minute. Consider the idea of a young teenager who lacks the ambition to train. He's, he or she is hoping that, you know, they might become a professional athlete someday. Doesn't really want to put in the typical preparation involved. And, you know, we might be tempted to suggest because God can do all things. God can. God is powerful. We might be tempted to suggest, well, you know, I suppose if God wanted to, you know, he could make me a professional athlete by a miracle. Without going through all those years of preparation. Maybe God will just make me the next Big Ben Roethlisberger, huh? No, he won't. No, God won't. God is working within natural parameters. How many NFL players do you see out there that are five foot nine, 160 pounds? Never worked out a day in their life. How many? None. Every pro athlete, regardless of the sport, whether it's women's golf, basketball, you name it, whatever it is, they invested years of devoted training beforehand. They invested themselves, they invested their time long before they ever made it big. They became the best of the best. And none of them, we would look at, watching them on television, say, boy, that little scrawny guy there for the New England Patriots defensive line, man, that that must be a miracle. No! No! No one gets there by a miracle. God primarily works through natural causes and events. We do know God has, is sovereign. He's behind our lives and actions and physical healing. We know that. We know those things. We know He works in ways we don't fully understand. We acknowledge that every Work of salvation is a supernatural changing of the heart. A regeneration of the heart. That is a miracle of God. That anyone would believe in the first place is a miracle. The message we have, that somebody would believe that, that's God's Holy Spirit. Because it's a miracle. No one in their natural state would believe this message. It is a message by God. Given by God. And believed through the power of God. We have to acknowledge with that illustration Christ is not going to build his church in our midst among us without working out. He's not going to do a miracle here without our preparation involved, our devotion to our game. We hear churches all the time saying usually the dying kind. They'll say, well, you know, if God wants them, he'll find a way to get them in the door. No, he won't. That's not the way that he says in Scripture he works. He doesn't work that way. He says, go and tell. Doesn't say, put a sign out front and just wait for him to come in. That's a good way to kill your church. Don't prepare. Don't work out. Don't push yourself. Just wait around for God to do a miracle. No, that's not the way the church works today. And just like a professional athlete who disciplines his or her mind to become the best, We need to discipline our lives for the purposes of Christ. If we want to be a praying church, 
We want to be seen as a praying church or part of a praying church. We need to devote ourselves to coming together to pray. If we want to be known as a soul-winning church, we need to commit ourselves to go out and tell other people about Jesus Christ. We need to work that out. If we want to be seen as a loving, a compassionate, a generous church in our community, we need to reach in and get our wallets. If we want the reputation of being, being a, a premier teaching church that's teaching the, the true gospel and the scriptures as they ought to be taught, then we need to engage our minds for learning. If, however, we want to be part of a dying church, well, let's just wait around for God to bring a miracle. Paul instructed Timothy, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. 1 Timothy chapter 4. The Colossians, to the Colossians he said, I'm rejoicing to see your good discipline. Paul said to the Corinthians, I discipline my body and I make it my slave. No one worked out harder than Paul for the gospel. The results we see in our lives and our churches are proportional to the effort we put in. They really are. They really are. There's no other way. When raising children, think about it. You have kids, you're bringing them up. Do you just kind of let them go their own way and kind of corral themselves and do what they want and then just pray that by the time they're a teenager that by miracle they'll be good? No. Nobody does that. Nobody does that. Discipline them in the instruction of the Lord. It's a process. Train up a child in the way he should go and he will not depart from it when he grows old. Nothing in development of the, our spiritual lives is portrayed as passive in Scripture. We're engaged in Scripture. We pray. We ask God even. Wake us up in time to go to church, God. Set your alarm. Lord, you know, just give me an interest to read my Bible. Well, shut off your TV and take it off the shelf. Lord, you know, give me the courage, the compassion to care enough about other people where I'll share the gospel with that person standing over there. Just go do it. Just go do it. We aren't waiting around for something miraculous to happen. I know as you're sitting there now, you're like, does this have anything to do with the introduction to Luke? Well, I am glad that you asked. As we get into Luke, we're going to see Luke has written a gospel of action. It is action. Jesus modeled a life of disciplined action. Whether it was praying early in the morning, going and telling other people, stopping when they come his way. Jesus was a man of action. Christians, we are commanded to be people of action. We inherited a ministry of action. So, we've got Luke. He sought to document these actions of, of Christ. These actions of the Son of Man, he calls him from time to time. Also the Son of God. And, and he gives a purpose in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. That he came, the Son of Man came, to seek and save which was lost. To seek it out and save. That implies action. 
You could almost subtitle this gospel we're going to study, The Acts of Christ. The Action of Christ. And then there's a second volume, The Acts of the Apostle. Action. When people ask me if our church is a seeker church, I tell them, yep, we are a seeker church. We know nobody seeks for God apart from the Holy Spirit prompting them, but we go out and seek for them. We are a seeker church. We seek the lost. So in a sense, I guess, yeah, we're a seeker church. If you want to put it that way. It was a seeker campaign that Luke documents of Jesus Christ coming into the world. Say, I'm going to seek and save that which is lost. From the very beginning of his gospel, he is seeking. It's a campaign where God actively enters into, engages personally with people. He enters a fallen world through the incarnation, born of a virgin. Luke even begins his storyline to Theophilus, we'll see next week. In verse 5, by describing this forerunner that came, John the Baptist. It's a forerunner sent to declare Christ. And in doing so, Luke takes great strides that, that God not only sends his son through a miracle, he also sends this forerunner through a miracle. A virgin birth with Jesus, a birth by an elderly barren woman with John the Baptist. God comes in through action. He intervenes. Luke invests a lot of ink on these events so that that we'll see God isn't a God that's just sitting around. He comes in and dwells with us. Walks among us. He's the one doing the acting. And then Luke shows to us this boy Jesus as he grows in, in wisdom and stature. He's gaining favor with men. As the Son of God, he chooses 12 disciples, teaching them the costs of discipleship. Don't forget that, the cost of discipleship. It's going to be a big theme in these, this book. There's a cost. And then, and then after teaching his disciples the cost of discipleship, he sends out 70 others. That's action. You're sending them out. Jesus is a man with a mission. To seek and save that which is lost. He models a deep concern. Like none that any of us has ever seen before. He has a deep concern for those who are suffering. He's worried about those who are suffering, concerned for them. We're told multiple times in the Gospels, Luke is no exception to this, that Jesus felt compassion. More literally, uh, in the original language, it just says, Jesus felt. Luke challenges us to get in touch with our feelings. That's going to be a little uncomfortable for some of us, including myself. But when Jesus saw the widow in Luke 7.12, who had an only son and now he dies, says that Jesus felt. He was concerned about her. Luke's the only gospel that records the story of the good Samaritan. When the man is left for dead, robbed, beaten, bloodied, The Samaritan man comes. He saw him. Scripture says that he felt. He felt. Luke provides uh, instruction about many other things, material goods, money. More than any other gospel, he talks about money. So we're going to like this one. This will be good. 
He gives us the parable of the money in Luke 19. Talks about the responsible steward, Luke 12. Then it's the shrewd manager in Luke 16. We've got the rich young ruler, Luke 18. The wealthy farmer and all those barns that he was looking to build for himself. Lay up a good retirement. That's in Luke 12. In fact, Luke also gives us that parable about the son who took his money. Lost everything. Lost everything. When that son came home, came back to his father, and that father welcomed him, Scripture says that he felt. He felt. Like Jesus, we ought to be using our ministry to do good. He feeds 5,000. He resurrects the dead, cleanses the leper, heals the paralytic, stops the woman's flow of blood, cures the blind, casts out demons, calms the sea. All these miracles, they confirm his identity, they attest to his ministry, they validate his divine sonship, that he is the Son of God. So by the time that he asks those twelve who are accompanying him, in Luke chapter 9, well, who do you say that I am? It's Peter that responds and says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus responds to them all, If anyone wishes to come up after me, he must deny himself and pick up his cross and follow me. Follow me. Just like he told Peter in our scripture reading. For what does it profit a man, he says, if he gains the whole world, but then forfeits his soul? The answer is there's no profit in that. And to the rich young ruler, you know, he had everything that he thought that he needed. He had the whole world in the palm of his hand. He was successful, had the money, had his youth, had it all he thought. Jesus said, um, there's still one thing you lack. Sell all you possess and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Follow me, he says. That's going to be a dominant theme in Luke. You know, follow me. Follow me. Follow me, he repeats. Are you ready to follow him? That's what Luke is going to ask you. This is the question we're prompted to answer as we read through this scripture. Because I've got to be honest, when I look at what I see in Luke and how Jesus acted and what he did and who he cared for and how he responded... I gotta admit, I don't look a whole lot like him. Not near as much as I should. Have I made Jesus my master? Have you made Jesus as your master? Because if my counting is right, Jesus is referred to as master in this book some twenty three times. Master. It's part of the purpose statement in Luke 6.40. There's a bunch of them. We're told a pupil is not above his teacher, Jesus says, but everyone after he's been fully trained will look like his teacher. How do we look? Let 
We got the Gospel of John. It was written so that you might believe. These things are written so that you will believe. First John was written so that we can have assurance. Revelation is written in the end so that we can protect our doctrine. And Luke writes this letter to strengthen Theophilus in Christ. All the Gospels, they're, they're undeniably evangelistic. They want you to believe in Christ. Well, I'd like you to perceive before we begin that this book is equally as important for the Christian to learn how to become like Christ. It's a discipleship manual. It's a resource for growth in Christ. We're not just looking at history here. When we come out next week and look at, at, at the forerunner coming, it's not just history. We need to observe Jesus. We must become more like Him. Many of us might think, you know, this is going to be a boring book. I already know about Jesus. I was told about Him. You know, I heard about Him. I even watched the movie. Well, I watched the movie too. But are we a lot like Christ because of it? Probably not because of movie. Be honest and think to yourself here. Don't raise hands. For those of us who consider ourselves Christians, how many of us actually have read through the Gospel of Luke cover to cover? Just think to yourself. I'd be willing to propose that probably less than half of us have ever read through this book. Eh, that's a problem we're going to remedy. I, I'd propose this Gospel of Luke combined with the Acts of the Apostles. It's a series written at least partially as a two-step discipleship manual. At least partially. The Acts of Christ, part one. The incarnation of God coming to live among men. The Acts of the Apostles, part two. The response, the Spirit-filled response to the Gospel. Part one and two. This entire work, Luke 1 through Acts chapter 28, provides Christians a, a how-to manual. How to be a good disciple. How to look like Christ. How to live the Christian life. How to seek and save that which is lost. Minus the miracles today. Luke is an incredibly important writer. Incredibly important. Uh, I'll say more about him, his background, how he came to write this in the weeks to come as we progress. But he is the most prolific writer in the New Testament. Most prolific. His work makes up 28% of the New Testament. That's more than the Apostle Paul. His work is completely indispensable to understanding the Bible in the New Testament. We couldn't understand the Bible without it. Especially the New Testament epistles. Where did Paul come from? Think about that for a second. Where in the world did that guy come from? How did the gospel spread? How are we as Gentiles grafted in? How did we get here? Where did that happen? How did it occur? How do we fit in God's family? Who's the James who wrote the epistle? How do you know all these things unless you have this Luke-Acts combination, especially with the second part in Acts, the transition from Pentecost into the church age? Very important work here. We owe an enormous debt to this very close companion of the Apostle Paul named Luke. He's only mentioned 
three times in Scripture by name. Only three times. He was a travel companion with the Apostle Paul. He was with him in many parts of the we sections of of the Acts of the Apostles when he says, we were together, or we went somewhere. He, He documents the travels of the Apostle Paul combined with other extensive research. By all of this, he's learned the cost of being a disciple. He's learned the cost of being a disciple. He's experienced the rejection of the Jews. He's been with Paul when there's been stonings. He's seen a lot of, a lot of the resistance to the early church. And from the content of Christ's early years and the opening chapters that we're going to look at, with, with the uh, Holy Spirit conceiving Jesus in the Virgin Mary by John the Baptist and how he came about by looking at these opening chapters that Luke puts so much emphasis into, we're going to come to the conclusion, realistically, that he spoke at great length to Mary herself. No other way to get a lot of this information. He spoke to Mary, the mother of Jesus, as one of his resources. He listened firsthand as Mary told him through her tears about the bloody cross. Luke was right there. He knew what the cost was. Through investigation, through looking into everything that Christ did, the predecessor, the forerunner, and by what he experienced as a a companion of the Apostle Paul, Luke had disciplined himself to persevere to the end with Paul when so many others didn't. Luke persevered. I credit this in large part to the material that he provided to Theophilus in this two-part work. The Gospel of Luke, the Acts of the Apostles. The research that he did. He found out the truth. He investigated it carefully, what had happened. There's no higher summit in Scripture than this. All Scripture is equally authoritative, but there's no higher summit in Scripture than this Gospel and the book of Acts. Let me close by reciting the last mention of this man in Scripture. It's, it's by Paul, the Apostle Paul. He, he's awaiting his trial in Rome. And Paul had, you know, he'd been betrayed by so many that were close to him. Previously close to him, part of his ministry. And, and now... Paul is in a foul prison. He's about to be martyred for his faith. About to be put to death. And he's been on trial. In it, Paul urges Timothy. This is the book of 2 Timothy. He's writing to Timothy saying, come quickly. There is not a lot of time. Things had turned out very badly. Paul was going to be executed for being a Christian. For his message of the gospel. I don't remember reading anything like this in the purpose-driven life. Listen with me. This is somewhat abridged. Starting in 2 Timothy, Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, Paul writes to Timothy, You be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. 
In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus, and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. He vigorously opposed our teaching. At the first defense, no one supported me. All deserted me. May it not be counted against them. Does that sound like Jesus on the cross? But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, Paul says, so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished. And that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth, he says. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, and he will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This was the worst hour for Paul. The worst. It's the final thrust of the gospel from Paul into Rome. He'd been betrayed, he had been abandoned. Left alone, except for one. Except for one. Who is that one? Verse 11. Only Luke is with me. Were those men close? Who would stay with Paul through all of that? Those men were close. When the worst of situations erupted, Did Luke persevere in the face of persecution? Oh, Luke persevered in the face of persecution. How? Because concerning the life of Christ, what he had learned by his careful investigation of all the facts concerning Jesus, from the very beginning, he says, talking to the apostles, speaking to Mary, and all the others, he carefully investigated Everything from the very beginning. That is how he persevered in the faith when the persecution came. That's it. Through this information, the gospel and Acts, we're going to do the same thing. Beginning next week, we're going to begin with the announcement of the forerunner, John the Baptizer. We're going to enter into the gospel of Luke and we are going to learn how to persevere in our faith. Let's pray.